Hello friends, welcome. Always delighted to have you here. Today I am chatting with Richard Fowler, who is the host of The Richard Fowler Show. He's a Fox News contributor. He is a contributor for Forbes. And we are chatting about something today that is going to really move the needle for some of you. It is a strategy that we can use to make change in our communities for the better. And it might be something you haven't thought of before. It is way more than just calling your elected representative. So let's dive into my conversation with Richard Fowler. I'm Sharon McMahon, and welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. Richard, I am so glad you're here today. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Sharon. Thanks for having me. I would love to hear more about your background. Can you introduce yourself to everybody else so we can all get to know you a little bit? Oh, absolutely. 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 Well, one, I am a storyteller, so I love really good stories and I love helping people tell better stories. And that's really sort of how I got into this role. I went to GW undergrad. I'm trained as an economist, but after sort of finishing school, I graduated during the Great Recession. I realized that there weren't many jobs out there. And a friend of mine said, you should get involved on a campaign. And when I got involved in the campaign, I really wasn't good at being in the field, but I really found a knack for the communications department. And one thing led to another. And before you knew it, I was working with candidates and working with teachers unions and working with folks all across the country to tell better stories. And also engaging in storytelling myself. I started out in radio, then moved to television, and I have been telling stories ever since. And so I'm Mm -hmm. happy to be here to share some stories with you, Sharon. The idea of working on a campaign is very mysterious to many people. (laughs) I think that it's a bunch of like people in the Wizard of Oz behind a curtain, frantically pulling a bunch of levers. Yes. What, What is campaigning for real? I actually started out on electoral campaigning and very quickly I started working on actually issue campaigns and most of my issue campaign work has really focused on education and healthcare, uh, mm. especially in education. And so when we so when I say campaign, what, what I basically mean, I, I view a campaign as a project. Campaigns for me are things that have definite beginnings and definite endings, right? Mm. In the case of elections, it begins when the candidate announces or prior to the candidate's announcement and it ends once the candidate, after the election, right? Or when the election happens. In the case of the teachers that I work with, oftentimes the campaign might begin with a goal in mind. So in the case of when I work with the teachers in Chicago, they were negotiating a new contract with the city of Chicago for for their services. So the campaign began in earnest and we were beginning our talking to the city of what that contract looked like. And it ended once the contract was finalized. Um, But oftentimes campaigns could be, you know, one year, two year, three year, four years. And sometimes if, you know, you're talking about a presidency, it starts, oftentimes the, the presidential campaign ends when the candidate is elected, but then being governing is also a campaign, right? Like Mm. as we sort of talk about paid family leave and we talk about Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda, the president is actively campaigning for the passage of a piece of legislation. And then once he's done, he'll then move into campaigning to help ensure the folks who pass, helped him pass that legislation get reelected in the midterm election. So the presidency is a group of campaigns that happen sort of consecutively. So you have Mm. the presidential campaign, then he had his American Rescue Plan, then he had getting folks vaccinated. And there are a series of campaigns that have different due dates and end dates, but they all sort of flow together in one mm-hmm. large orchestration of what becomes a presidency. That is a really interesting way of looking at it is that these are just a series of presidential projects. And yes. it begins, begins with the project of getting into office. 
And then it, there are various projects that occur while they're in office. And then they have to quickly within, within two years, begin the next project of trying to stay in office. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. American people are weary of the endless campaigns? I was actually having dinner with some friends yesterday. And one of my friends said so poignantly, he was like, I think that the American people, at least me as an American voter, I'm just tired of politicians being politicians. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired. I wish they would sometimes just get out there and tell us what they're actually thinking or actually tell us the truth or tell us what's actually happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that what he was speaking to was this idea that the American people are weary of this idea that there's just a constant campaign. What the mm -hmm. American people actually want from government is to set government and forget government. And when government is working at its most optimum, right? It's when government is happening and the services and the things that you need government to do is happening and you don't even know it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and the time, I mean, it, in my life cycle, I think the time when you think about it the best is if you think about almost like the beginning of Obama's second term, I don't know if you remember that, that was so long ago, right? Mm -hmm. There was a moment in which you almost forgot that he was there, right? Like you forgot that the president was there, like the president wasn't in the news every day, like the country was just operating normally. We had come we had gotten over the great recession and we had started to move into the economy was just slowly the economy was coming back people were working the biggest news headline of the day was i want to say it was harry and Meghan markle getting married it was all sorts of other things happening around us that wasn't 1600 pennsylvania avenue or the capitol building and mm -hmm. that is what you really want that's when a presidency is at its finest a presidency is in its finest when we're not spending 100 percent of time talking about the president mm -hmm. That's a very interesting point. People are much happier when government is just in that set it and forget it mode. The people no. who are not in power need those crises. They need to manufacture outrage. And this goes on both sides of the equation. They need to manufacture outrage about something so that voters will choose them 
instead of the people in power during the next election. What America's body politic is today is, is literally like the only way to think about it's like football, right? You, the one player or one team gets the football and their goal is to run the football down the field as fast as possible and knock the other players out the way and hopefully get a touchdown. And then when the other players get the ball, Right. Their goal is to run the other team down, the run the other team, the other opposite direction. And as a result of that, the American people are sort of left in the middle with a little bit of whiplash. Right. And this is why we have such a divided feeding frenzy when it comes to how government is done, because that's not what democracy is about. Democracy is actually about finding consensus and building consensus. Democracy is about bringing groups of people or coalitions, better a better word, that don't all, often always agree on everything, that say, okay, I don't agree on this part. You don't agree on that part. Where can we find common ground to build some solutions? And here's the truth. In the end of it, we're not all going to get what we want but we're going to slowly but surely move the country forward. And if you think about some of the best eras that we've had when government was at its finest, I mean, for me, one of the best eras that I really, when I think about, I think about Lyndon Baines Johnson's great society, right? When, when Lyndon Baines Johnson said, okay, Republicans, I know there's some of these things that you don't want to do, but we've got to get this done so we can move the country forward. And during the great society, here's what we got done, right? We actually created a public education system that said, if you're poor, not we're not we're not that we're going to give you equality, we're going to give you equity, we're going to give you exactly what you need so that we can level the playing field. So if you really think about the great society, what LBJ was asking America to do is step outside yourself, think about what's happening to your neighbor and say, hmm, maybe what's happening to my neighbor is not as good as it should be. And I can compromise so that my neighbor can live the same life that I'm living. You can see that in a huge variety of issues that playing out in the United States right now. No aspect of my individual liberty should be sacrificed for the greater good of the community. And I think that is really where a lot of our contention comes from is communitarians versus individualists, right? You see that in things like vaccine mandates and mask mandates, like those are super hot button issues right now. And you have some people on the communitarian side of things saying like, you can't just walk around and potentially infect people and people on the individualism side saying, you can't tell me what I need to have injected it into my arm, right? Like this is, this is the American conundrum. Uh, and this, and this conundrum is not present in, to the same extent in many other nations. It is very uniquely American. I think it goes back literally to this country's inception. Do you, you agree with that assessment or do you have yeah. a different take on it? I think that's absolutely right. And I think what coronavirus and what the global pandemic has laid bare right, just based on how countries fared, is the countries that have a community-centric focus. We're all in this together. They fared so much better than countries that were divided. And, and then the best example is, look at the South Koreans or look at the New Zealands, right? Two countries that almost had their first coronavirus case when we had our first coronavirus case. And, and when you look proportionately, right, their death tolls were far lower, their infection rates were far lower, their testing rates were far higher. And if you look at these countries, right, they didn't have a seven, they didn't have, I mean, obviously proportionately have a small population, but they didn't have 700,000 people die from coronavirus. They don't currently have hundreds of people on ventilators. They don't currently have doctors getting on television begging people, please just give us a chance to catch up, 
right? They don't have any of the issues that we're facing here in America because we have this idea, like I call it this rugged individualism has gotten in the way of this idea that we're all in this together because whether we like it or not, we're neighbors, we're relatives, we're friends, we're aunts, we're uncles, we're moms and we're dads. We have to take ourselves out of our own ability, our own selves and say, is that person next to me a human? And I think many of the debates that we're having in this country today, the most these controversial third rails of politics that we're having, they we have them because we have failed to confer definitions on people. When we fail to define people, it's easy to say, well, it's happening to them over there and they're not me. And to be fair and to be clear, Sharon, that goes both ways because empathy is a two-way street. That also means that for those folks who are saying that we need to be a more just and equitable society, it means that you have to give space for folks who are saying, listen, I don't understand equity. I don't understand what diversity and inclusion looks like. So you have to give me a little bit of room. And because I don't understand, it doesn't mean that I'm racist. I just need some space to understand. And so the, when we immediately say, oh, if you don't understand, you're racist, oh, we create where we are right now, which is a whole bunch of political constituencies all locked in concrete and mm. nobody's willing to move. Mm. Nobody's willing to have a conversation. That's such an interesting way to illustrate it, that we have reached a point where anybody who has um, any question about an issue where they're like, how will we pay for these reforms? I'm just like speaking very generally. How do we intend to pay for X or Y or Z program? They're immediately labeled as like, you hate families. You're an anti-family candidate. And what that does is it says to them, well, I better not ask any more questions. I asked one simple question and a bunch of people got really mad at me. And so I guess I, my original impression was correct. And it hardens where they are instead of making them more interested in empathy and curiosity in asking legitimate questions. So if we tell people, if we humiliate people who ask to understand, then it causes their position to harden. And I love that imagery of like, we have a bunch of people whose opinions are currently set in concrete and apparently what we need are some jackhammers <laughs> to come along and just like bust them out of where they are. Although that is easier said than done, clearly. Well, and I think that's the power of storytelling, which is why I love the work that I do, because storytelling is that jackhammer. Think about mm. it. When we think about Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda, it's a perfect example of part of the problem. So in the Build Back Better agenda, it's chock full of all of these policies that are literally policies that are necessary in this country, once you put the word elected official or politician next to their name, that person is immediately viewed with mistrust. So you have to say that that person has mistrust. So when they speak of, about an issue, 50% of the people don't believe them. So if you are a Republican and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says something to you, you don't trust her. Nope. If you're a Democrat and Ted Cruz says something to you, you don't trust him. And in the middle, there's people who this is their lived experience that like I said, empathy is a two-way street and empathy doesn't have a gender or a sexuality or a race to it. And what I truly believe is that if we bring people into the room and say, here's my issue and here's my issue, I guarantee you, we could come down to some real solutions. It's hard to hate people when you are looking in their eyeballs, right? Like there is just something about that where you can literally see somebody's eyes. You're sitting across the table from them. It requires far more effort to hate in that scenario than it does to just watch some people on TV and be like, dang, you know who I hate are those people over there. Once they're out there, once they're those people, 
it's easy to just lump everybody all together and to just decide like, they're not me and I don't like them. And Sharon, I got to tell you, and that is as somebody who, I mean, I voted for Joe Biden in the last election. I have no shame in admitting that, but it sort of speaks to how you see the political parties use identity. It's very rare that you will see folks attack a teacher because it's hard to attack the identity. Because when you say teacher, you think about your kindergarten teacher. Or for me, I think about my debate coach and the warm and fuzziness that I have for how Mr. Wakefield changed my life then impacts my thinking about teach a teacher. But if you say the teacher's union, that amorphous mm -hmm. body of people, right? Then it's very, then you don't have to think about the unique individuals. It's hard to hate the teacher. It's hard to hate the firefighter. It's easy to hate the collective. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house and then when people come over they're like um your house smells weird there's a solution for that and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant it is taking care of the smell at the source by using lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet it is a whole body deodorant it is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. 
absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. So tell me more about how you view storytelling as a way to sort of jackhammer people out of their hardened concrete positions in politics. Oh, uh, well, I, I, I love it because storytelling allows you to, for most people, but especially Americans, we are the arbiters of good stories, right? And we are the collectors of good stories. Think about growing up as a child, whether it was Goldilocks and the Three Bears, Red Riding Hood, all these stories. And they weren't necessarily like books that your mom or your dad or your, or your parents or your guardians picked up and gave to you and flipped the books and read them to you. Oftentimes there were stories that you might've been laying in their lap or they might've just told you by mouth, right? Because it's a stories are usually things that are passed down from generation to generation and stories invoke emotion right? And they invoke feeling. And so that's the power of a really good story. And in a campaign setting, oftentimes people won't remember the policy, but they'll remember the story. And a great example of that is in 2019, when uh, I was helping the Teachers Union of Chicago try to figure out what story they were trying to tell. We were trying to figure out, like, how do we tell an effective story about what the teachers are up against and what they were fighting for? And we used this story uh, around a, a brave paraprofessional or teacher assistant named Willie. And Willie was a teacher assistant that was not making enough money. And he ended up working the night shift at the Walmart stacking shelves. And he also was an Uber driver, but he loved his kids so much that after being an Uber driver and after stocking the shelves at Walmart, he still went into work every day and literally took care of his special needs children at school. And what we did with Willie is we called, we called it the Willie calculator. And so Willie told us how much he made and then how much bills he had. And we literally created the Willie calculator. So Willie's telling us, and in the side of the screen, you have how much he's making and how much is going out. And it's always a negative number. Every month, a negative number. Every month, a negative number. And we told this story via video. This story was so impactful. Got over a million impressions. Got shared from everybody, from Lizzo, Sharon, Susan Sarandon, Chance the Rapper. Everybody shared Willie's story. And pre-pandemic, Everybody wanted to know, how's Willie? When the contract settled, how's Willie doing? They could care less about what was in the contract. What they just wanted to know, did Willie's life get any better? Because the story of Willie connected with people. Willie was struggling and Willie was doing everything, quote unquote, that you're supposed to do. He was working really hard. He was playing by the rules. And the whole, the whole ideal of the American dream is, is if you work hard and you play by the rules, you're supposed to be sort of guaranteed a ticket to the middle class. And for Willie, that wasn't his reality. 
And we told the story based on what the ideal of the American dream is and what the reality of being a working class family member in America was. And that was a shock to the system for many people, but it was also a really good story. And that's the power that storytelling has to sort of change an issue. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, I don't think we use it as much as we should, but if we can use storytelling more, we would change so much in this country. And beyond that, I think we would move so many people to say, hmm, maybe my political position here is not the best political position. I love that. How can somebody who wants to change something in their community, let's say they are unhappy about something that's happening at their child's school, or they want to work for paid parental leave, how can people go about using storytelling to affect change? Oh, I think it's easy. Think about how the issue affects you and then go tell people about it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's basic, I mean, <laughs> I wish on their door. I, I mean, I wish it was more complicated than that, but it's really just that simple. If we have that conversation and we urge those folks to share their story, we'll realize that we haven't done enough. And we're going to have to go back and do more. And doing more might mean that I might have to give some more of myself that I don't want to give. And that's not really the conversation we should be having. Because we know that if we build a society that works for the least of these, it actually benefits everybody. And that's what LBJ's Great Society Through History taught us. If you could figure out how to help the worst, help the poorest, help the most vulnerable, everybody across the board does better. You start to grow the middle class. Entrepreneurs start to pop up all over the place. The stock market starts to grow. Why? Because more people are investing in it, right? Small businesses and, and big businesses start to thrive because they have more brain power, more folks going to college, more opportunities pop up, more innovation pops up. America's biggest strength is its diversity, but for us to lean into that diversity, it requires us to hear and provide and create room for all of these diverse stories instead of shutting them out. This is the dilemma that we have as a country, right? And I think it's very interesting because I think where we sort of sit now, it, there's groups of Americans that don't, we have a hard time in this country talking about where we make mistakes, where we like, and, and, and truth be told, I, I often find in your mistakes is actually where you find your growth, right? And I think one of the reasons why we struggle as a country to grow is because we have a hard time of talking about the blemishes, yeah. right? And I, I mean, I'm a believer. I think our America's blemishes are beautiful, right? Because out of our blemishes have come so many great individuals and so many great people. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week and it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try like which one is worth your money and if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is one skin their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy no complicated routines just simple scientifically validated solutions the secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. 
try one skin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co code Sharon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I wrote a piece that's coming out next week around Colin Powell's memorial. And in it, I say very clearly, if it weren't for immigration, there wouldn't be a Colin Powell. If it wasn't for the fact that Colin Powell's parents were Jamaican American, many of the traits that Colin Powell exhibited that made him an exemplar general and an exemplar statesman that sort of was somebody who wrote was political but rose above politics has everything to do with the fact that he was part of America's immigrant experience. But if you take Colin Powell out of his immigrant experience, then you take away the essence of who Colin Powell was. Mm. But taking, putting Colin Powell in his immigrantness, for better, for use of a better word, will require, it's a shock to the system because it requires you to acknowledge that the current way that we do immigration is broken. And it requires you to acknowledge that immigration in this country is a good thing. And the debate that we're now having is literally immigrant good, immigrant bad. And really the debate that we should be having is the system in which the immigrants enter this country is outdated. So it's not about immigrant good, immigrant bad. It's about the fact that we have a system that was written in the 1980s and we currently live in 2021 and where, you, where we now have cell phones and computers and drones and the internet. And we have a system on how to process and how, to, how immigrants enter the country that was written at a time where we didn't have, the internet wasn't even invented, mm -hmm. right? And, and smartphones didn't exist. <laughs> Right, and we have a backlog of millions of visas. Literally, the backlog is millions of visa applications. So, I mean, I don't think there's anybody who feels like this system works great. Nobody's like, everything is running smoothly. Not the people who work in the system, not Americans on the right, not Americans on the left, not immigrants themselves. And I think what's so interesting is that everybody wants to claim the founders and claim the constitutional intent. But I do believe that if you were to talk to some of our founders, if you read the writings of our founders very carefully, like if you were to go find one of my favorite founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, and ask him, he'd be like, I would have thought you guys would have destroyed that constitution and written a new one already. Mm -hmm. I only gave it 20 years. So the fact that it's still there, but I think they would be actually perplexed that we only have, you only guys that you go, you guys only have 20 some odd amendments by now, y'all should have 60 or 70 or 80 amendments by now, right? And so you have to ask yourself when, when even when you have these conversations around the founders and the founders intent, I'll never forget, there was an interesting moment 
a couple months ago where Muriel Bowser, the mayor of the District of Columbia, was testifying around DC statehood and they were asking her what the founders thought. And, and I almost wanted to say, I wish I could have sort of been her voice at the moment to be like, well, it's really interesting you asked me that because as a black woman, when the founders wrote the constitution, they never would have thought that I would be the mayor of the District of Columbia. So you're asking me a question that is almost so outdated. And so like, it's almost crazy for you to ask me the question of what the founders intent for the District of Columbia was. When the founders intent, when they wrote the constitution, I was still three fifths of a person. So you're asking me questions that you can't, that you shouldn't even really ask me in this moment because I don't think the founders envisioned the current world that we're living in. And, and even to that point, the people who wrote the 1980 immigration laws, I don't think they envisioned the 2021 world that we're living in, right? And the needs of the 2021 economy versus the 1980 economy. And so every time we have these questions or these conversations or these issues that are very much polarized, where it's black and white, good versus bad, the truth of the matter is there's usually 50 shades of gray. And number one, and number two, the question shouldn't be good or bad. The question should be, what is causing us to say good or bad? And is there something in our policy that makes us think good or bad, mm. right? Same goes for how we think about healthcare. Healthcare is another one of these sort of third rails of politics that has been no, yes, no. But really the truth should be, well, shouldn't everybody be able to go to the doctor if they're sick? And if that's the case, shouldn't everybody be able to go to the doctor if they're sick and not worry about going bankrupt after the fact? Shouldn't that be just a basic universal understanding? And if that's the basic understanding that we all walk in the door with, it's a lot more likely that we'll find a solution that isn't one way or another. It's a solution that actually somewhere in the middle, right? And a solution that everybody can benefit from. But instead you have, yes, no, repeal, don't repeal. And mm -hmm. the answer is Obamacare was good, but it wasn't great. And we could do stuff to make it better. <laughs> it's one of the head scratchers that I often have with it as I think about, and I've been, I've worked in politics and I've worked in, with elected officials. And I think we'll never ever get to the point where we say, hmm, that wasn't as good as we could have done. And we should give this another shot. Mm -hmm. Or we should find a way to make this better. We should tweak this and we should make this better. Or, But we refuse to have that conversation Number one, because I think we've taken the people out of it. We've made it so nebulous. And so we're not talking about the people that are caught up in it. And number two, having that conversation makes folks uncomfortable. People don't want to be vulnerable or be uncomfortable or acknowledge that a problem actually exists. Mm. I totally agree with you that America is not real good at having humility. We, our leaders, some of our leaders have a toxic level of pride. Mm. in which they are unable to say, you know, in retrospect, there was information that I wish I had had. And I made a decision that was based on incomplete information. And my decision is the wrong one. And here is why I think we need to go in a different direction. Many of our leaders are unable to let words like that fall out of their mouth. When was the last time you heard somebody say that? Probably Colin Powell. Yes. <laughs> right. Where he was like Iraq blemish on my record. That shouldn't have happened. You know, like he admitted when he made a mistake about something and that is today a very unique characteristic in it, a leader. It is. And if we, if we had politicians that were brave enough to do that, you know, how many lives it would save. Just think about the HIV before we even get to the global pandemic and coronavirus. Think about the HIV AIDS crisis of the eighties. And if Ronald Reagan had come out and said, look, 
we made mistakes. We should have acknowledged it. Instead of running away from HIV AIDS, my health department and my administration should have ran towards it and embraced it as a public health pandemic. And we should have done everything we could to inform Americans about it. We should have done everything we could to research how it spreads and to research how you get it and to research how you can prevent it. If they had done that, we could have saved thousands of people. <laughs> we'd have probably, it was very possible that we could have probably eliminated HIV AIDS. <laughs> If at the beginning we says, okay, so there is something moving. Here's what we know. I have gotten, I've got the best scientists in this government working on this, right? And I think the 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 opposite, the transverse is if you look at how we develop this vaccine, what this vaccine shows us is that when the world decides that they're going to work together and you bring the smartest people and you take the walls away and you take the, you know, uh, the the, the intellectual Bureaucracy. property way and everybody just shares information. Look how fast they developed a vaccine based on information they already had. And that just shows you what we already have the capacity to do. But oftentimes there, there are inherent barriers, individual barriers, governmental barriers in the way of us doing what's best for humankind. And I'm not saying this is like, you know, some sort of peace loving, let's all hold hands and sing and sit in a circle, right, and sing songs. I'm just saying this is a glowing example of what happens, to, like what you said earlier, when we lean into vulnerability and we actually say, here's a problem, here's a mistake that we made in the past, and now let's work towards a way to try to find the answer so we don't have to make this mistake again. Mm -hmm. I also think it is incumbent upon all of us you know, it's easy for us to sit in our houses and be like, our leaders are toxically prideful, you know, like I totally do that, <laughs> but it is incumbent on the rest of us. When somebody is vulnerable and says, we made a mistake on that. We were wrong. I misspoke. I made the wrong choice, et cetera, et cetera. We should, as the voting citizenry applaud, hmm. we should applaud the fact that they changed their mind based on new and better information. That is how it's supposed to work, right? That's how it's supposed to work. What if our leaders were like, we decided that at this country's founding, it was fine to enslave people. And that is what we're going with, right? Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. Things have to change. And so when you have new and better information, when you have a societal change that is occurring, it's incumbent upon you to change your mind. And thus, as citizens, we should applaud people who have the humility to say, I'm changing my mind and here's why. Instead, as citizens, we immediately label them flip-floppers. We immediately think they're weak and like, oh my gosh, they don't even know what they're doing, you know? And so it disincentivizes our leaders from ever doing that again. It disincentivizes them to change their mind based on new and better information. And again, helps cement their opinion that their already held opinion because to change requires too much vulnerability from the American people. So some of this is on us. I think what often sometimes happens is when they make change and the change works, there's often sometimes a snap back. And I think we saw that in the last election. So in the last election, because of the global pandemic, what states and municipalities did is they found ways to make voting easier, right? And as a result of making voting easier, guess what? More people participated, right? We had the highest voter turnout in American history. People who never voted before, they were like, wow, you could vote by mail, you could do Dropbox at this place, you could vote 24 hours. This is great. And then states were like, 
because of perpetuation of a big lie, states were like, well, we're now gonna make it harder to vote. And in my mind, I spent a lot of my time scratching my head. So the ideal of democracy, right? What makes this country so great is that we have a democracy where everybody, and we really have a democratic republic, but we'll call it a democracy for the purposes of this conversation. Everybody, every two years, they get a say in their elect, who they send to Congress. Every four years, they get a say in who's a national leader. For the first time, more people than ever turned out and they engaged in this democracy. They had their voice heard. And because some folks didn't like how it went, they were like, now we're gonna make it more inconvenient to vote. A snapback from something that actually worked. And I'm, I'm, I, it's like, that makes no sense. If more people are participating and the de democracy is more robust, you should be trying to find ways to say, well, this worked. Now, the one problem that we have is that in certain parts and in certain neighborhoods, people are waiting four hours to vote. That's problematic. And we've got to do everything in our power to make sure that you never wait more than 30 minutes to vote. And that should be a national standard, period. But instead, you literally have lawmakers who are like, we're going to try to make it as hard as possible for people to vote, which is anti-democratic. This is not something that should be political. This is not about political party, right? Because it shouldn't matter who gets the most votes. Getting the most votes is about what argument you're saying to the American people and how you campaign. Having access to the ballot should be nonpartisan. It should be universal. Everybody gets access to the ballot. That's the rules to the race. Now, who runs the fastest and who crosses the finish line first? That's democracy. Mm, that's a great point. Who wins the race is democracy. The rules that we all have to agree on though. It's a little bit like, to use your football analogy, we don't just halfway through a football game decide that the rules will change. That part. <laughs> we're not like, oh, we're down by two. You know what? For the second half, everyone needs to take their shoes off. We don't just change the rules in the middle. I would love for you to tell everybody uh, where to find you and what you're up to and where they can watch you on Fox News, where they can find you online, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. So one, thanks for having me. Two, uh, I'm a contributing writer at Forbes. And what I do, what I, the reason why I love the work I do at Forbes is I am able to tell really amazing stories. And so I go out there and I try to find the stories that are the interconnection between policy and people right, and where those things interconnect. So I uplift these amazing stories. So you could definitely check out my work at Forbes, at Forbes the Culture. Beyond that, you can check out my work on, at Fox. I'm one of uh, a frequent co-hosts on The Five. And to find out when I'm on Fox, you should follow me on social media, at Richard A. Fowler. On the sit the same on Twitter and on Instagram, uh, at Richard A. Fowler. And check out my work there. I also, I also always post clips, so you can always see the clips right after I'm on. We post them throughout the week and continue to engage me in the conversation there. But I always love, love, love having conversations with people. I manage my own social media, so I respond to people's comments. I love responding to emails and letters and notes and IGs and DMs, so please do so. <laughs> Slide into his DMs. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this was fantastic. I truly appreciate your time. I have so many great oh. takeaways. I think people are gonna really enjoy hearing from you. Oh, thank you. I loved being with that. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave me a rating or a review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All of those things help podcasters out so much. 
This podcast was written and researched by Sharon McMahon and Heather Jackson. It was produced by Heather Jackson, edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder, and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. I'll see you next time.